Okay, well, uh, welcome all to uh, this event, which is, is co-organized by uh, the Conflict Research Group here at LSE and LSE Arts and the Christia Gallery in Cork Street, where there is an exhibition uh, at the moment hosting some of the artists who are on the panel this evening. My name is Professor Jim Hughes. I'm the director of the Conflict Research Group. We don't normally run these kinds of events. It seems to me it's a very good idea that we do do it. Usually we, our events are focused on history, politics. It's very rare that we actually try and engage with different facets of conflict that lie outside of those disciplines. Uh, and after all, it seems to me that you can't really understand any conflict without locating it within some kind of cultural context, and that includes the arts, obviously. But it's something that we don't generally do, so it's great that we're doing it this evening. Uh, I'm going to pass you over to Dr. Gwendolyn Zassa from the University of Oxford. She will be uh, the discussant for this evening's event, and she will also introduce the panellists. Thank you, Jim. Um, it's a great pleasure to be back at the LSE, in particular for, for this kind of an event. Um, and I'd like to just briefly tell you how this event came about and how we will proceed this evening. There's quite a lot happening, and you're in for a real treat. And as Jim already said, an unusual event, perhaps, for the LSE. Um, and then we'll move on to uh, present the, the artist's work. Um, this event grew out of a show, uh, the Alan Christea Gallery, um, uh, put on. I had the pleasure of curating the show together with Helen Waters, who is sitting in the front row here. Um, the show is called Conflicted Memory, and you will have all probably seen a little brochure going around. There will be copies for, for everybody. That show looks at um, the role of and the process of um, remembering, uh, commemorating, but also forgetting, and it deals with different kinds of memories of conflict, uh, apartheid, nationalism, political and social change. And while the show looks um, at uh, contemporary art dealing with uh, those conflicted memories more generally, tonight we focus on three of the artists whose work really focuses most closely on uh, ethnic conflict and the legacy of um, conflict. Um, the show is on until the 1st of June at the Alan Christia Gallery in Cork Street, 31 Cork Street, just behind the Royal Academy of Arts, so I hope you get a chance to, to see the whole show. <laughs> Working with Helen on the show has been a really rewarding um, experience, and um, I think it shows that there's a lot one can learn from um, sort of the other side of the fence, as it were, so academics and um, art practitioners, um, curators, I think can, can work together really, really well. And it made me think, working with Helen on this show, about what we mean by interdisciplinary work. And when we talk about interdisciplinarity in the social sciences, and LSE is a place of the social sciences, we mostly think of linking things like politics and economics, or politics and sociology, and it often feels to me as if in the end we're ending up with something that looks, or they all, all the disciplines resemble one another. And I'm not really sure there's sort of all that much um, tension or productive tension between, the two, between them. And interdisciplinarity in the arts um, seems to mean uh, perhaps bringing theatre, the visual arts, and literature together, but again, um, perhaps less so um, engaging with academic themes as well, or academic research. 
And after all, the notion of research is, is really key to many contemporary artists. They use the word research, uh, they engage in artistic research, and we use often the same terminolo- terminology and the same means of, for example, archival work, um, different engagement with documentary evidence, and so on. So this event is really one attempt to try and start perhaps this dialogue to, to uh, emerge. Um, during this show, we really felt that art can add a lot to our understanding of conflict. And perhaps it's partly because unlike academic research, it doesn't need to um, uh, prove um, something or predict something or generalize um, as the social sciences often uh, feel they have to. Uh, so it's a different form of, of engagement with uh, things like the causes of conflict or what happens in the aftermath of conflict and perhaps it can be as a result much more uh, closely related to individuals' experiences on the ground, uh, the messy reality of conflict and its aftermath which once we have used um, academic categories to classify things like the causes of conflict or what happens in the aftermath we might lose and we get actually quite far away from, from that And what I personally found most exciting is to see how artworks just in a few seconds or minutes can get to different layers of a very complex reality, which we academics often use many words for to describe and analyze, or journalists perhaps use um, quite um, sensationalist um, headings to grab our attention. So these works you will see here tonight and also in the show are of a more um, uh, um, muted or maybe contemplative nature Um, but they deal with very hard-hitting themes. And I don't want to um, go on for for any longer. Um, I just want to lay lay out how we will proceed, because there's a lot going on. We will start with um, Miriam de Borca, who is uh, an Irish artist, visual artist, and we'll show her uh, video first. We'll then move on to uh, Ruth Goddard, um, an artist from South Africa. We'll show images and talk us through her work and her practices. And we'll move on to Adela Yusic, uh, who will also um, present and talk us through her um, video. And we're then very fortunate to have a, a further guest on the panel, Jonathan Watkins, the um, director of the Icon Gallery in Birmingham. And he is currently curating the Iraq Pavilion at the Venice Biennale. So he knows a lot about um, artists and conflict and how artists engage with conflict settings. So we will give him the floor after we've uh, looked at and heard about the artist's work. So without further ado, we'll have to sort of um, move around a bit to, to make sure everybody can see, see well. We will start with Miriam, and the rest of us will, will leave for the moment and see you again a bit later. want to make a link between the film that I'm going to show here tonight and um, the film that's showing at the Alan Christia Gallery, uh, part of the Conflicted Memories exhibition. Um, the film at the gallery is called My Home is His Castle, and it's about Crom, which is an old colonial state, which I was living on in County Fermanagh until very recently. Um, it's a border county, and it's just north of the border between the north and the south of Ireland. Um, it talks about the estate's legacy and how it's screened behind its um, very romantic but constructed idyllic um, landscape. 
the film you're about to see now is, uh, will appear actually very different in treatment and subject matter, but really it's just another, si- um, another side of the same coin, really. Uh, Crom Castle in Fermanagh is a typical big house. Uh, it's a symbol of colonial wealth and power and behind gates and is surrounded by 2,000 acres of picturesque landscape. It's comfortably withdrawn from where the socio-political scenes are being battled out. Um, this film that you're going to see now is called Dogs of No Religion and in essence that is, is the battle scene in a way. It's an inner city tour of Belfast by a Protestant taxi driver and it's a very different landscape. Um, he would usually have given general terror tours as they called it uh, of Belfast for tourists but in this one I asked him to give me a personal tour of the city.
basically saviour of the Protestant people and it says because he wanted to keep the north of Ireland British. So the same what you call the Calvin. Now, my family was born in this area. My grandfather was one of the people who signed his name on the petition. And he signed it with his own blood. There's a lot of them did it. They cut their arm or whatever. And they were fashioned cold pens. Let the blood drip and use their own blood to sign their names in it. Seventy-two. I can show you where I was born on the shankle. Catholics and Protestants, we all lived together. You had the usually stupid rows on a Friday and Saturday night calling people Catholic, whatever, and Protestant and whatever. But that was all forgot about the next day. You didn't have to go to the extreme to shooting people and killing them. When the Catholic people they felt a wee bit alienated living in the shankle area, being a Protestant area, so they moved out. Some of them were burnt out, to be honest with you. They moved into what they, what they called a safe area, their own area, the Catholic the Falls Road. Likewise, you had a lot of Protestants who lived on the Falls Road. And they were getting the same done to them. So they didn't feel safe in, a, in another country, in other words, like busy just over the wall. They moved back into the shankle. That's what it was like. And that formed the little ghettos. I don't see any reason why people can't get on. Well, after the hijack a car, you just go out on the street, put a gun out, stop the car, we're taking your motor. Why? We're all police and army about. You don't want to get caught doing that. Because there's always a police patrol or somewhere about the place. So what it is, they ring up for a taxi. The taxi came through the door. They're just standing there waiting. They got the car delivered though. No way. <laughs> when 
taxi driver was shot dead. There's a fellow called Mickey McClanagan. He's a Catholic fellow. Brilliant bloke. We all worked together in, in the, during the Troubles, driving in the local depots. And that was the same. He's actually shot just about a half a mile down the road there on the shankle. A fantastic fellow. And you see at that funeral, there must have been at least 50 taxi drivers, all Protestants at his funeral. Because we all worked together. We went up here. It just got a bit dodgy for a while when you had their tip for tack cans. Because when Mickey was killed, the next night a Protestant was killed. And maybe a couple of days later, a Catholic was shot dead. All taxi drivers. It was called tip for tack, tip for tack. I don't want to go back to what we had for the last 30 years, I can tell you. I'm sorry. Catholic people. Would you like a United Ireland on the side? Couldn't care less. Couldn't care less. Because there's nothing separate in the south and the north. You can just drive in and drive out. You see how they got rid of religion here? Just say, listen, from tomorrow, there's no Catholics and no Protestants. I guarantee these people were walking in night in order to eat Remember that. 
dog is neither Catholic or Protestant or Jew or German or anything, it's a dog. When we went dog racing, there was never any trouble, even during all the troubles at the dogs. Because you people from the Falls Road, people from the Shankle, go on dog racing. Like, don't get me wrong, we may have tried to kill each other the day before, but when you go dog racing, there was no trouble. The difficulty is how, with a situation like that that is so complex, how do you how do you represent it in art, and how do you make work about it? I'm too quiet. Um, there are ways. For instance, I was looking at the structure of film and edit and camera work, and how you can represent certain things, create a sense of insecurity and fragmentation. Um, and just a general different treatment of, of camera work. So um, Dogs of No Religion is obviously a very fragmented-looking film. It's hard to watch. Um, partly it's because I didn't want to have the camera in his face while he told me his stories. But um, if you compare the structure and the treatment of, of this film and the film that's in the gallery, you'll see that they're very different. And they, for me, they represent what I would consider to be two, in a way, the, the, the structures of the two communities or the cultures that exist in Northern Ireland um, without being too general. But um, I would say that the, on the Irish Catholic side, it's quite fragmented and has been eroded in a lot of ways especially where I was living in Fermanagh, I discovered this even more so. And I would consider the, um, the other, like the Protestant culture, to be uh, constructed in some way and ha having been imported and embedded into the, the land in a way. So that was one, one way of trying to represent. It's quite a difficult thing. And then in the drawings that I made for the show... Um, it's like a form of trying to catalogue experiences and uh, represent things that have happened to me on a personal level, but in a way trying to, and when speaking about memory, it's like trying to freeze an experience and hold on to it. But of course, um, the thing about memory is that memory changes with your attitude. If your attitude changes, your memory will also change. So it's about talking about the, the way in which truths are, how do you say, um, frozen in time and how people try to hold on to something and uh, 
not allow it to change with time and to change with attitude. Um, Probably just to add to the, to the context, um, um, Miriam was, was born in, in Germany, moved to Galway um, at the age of three, and uh, moved to Belfast for two of her degrees, uh, first to Glasgow and then to, to Belfast. So perhaps that also um, means something in terms of the perspective you take. So you're not originally from Belfast, yeah. and now currently you're based <coughs> back in, in, in Galway again. Um, my, yeah, my reason for going, moving to Belfast wasn't... Uh, in any way, no, it wasn't a morbid fascination or anything. It was, it was to do an, a master's, and a, um, it was the reputation of the master's that drew me there. But as I lived there, my life became directly affected by, by things, and especially when I moved into North Belfast, and the house that I lived in was directly on an, an interface, so um, rioting was taking place right outside the house. And I found my work actually changed quite dramatically in that time, which was what my PhD ended up about, was to see, uh, take that apart in a way and, and actually really examine what it was that um, had affected my practice and why living in North Belfast and the restrictive atmosphere that I was in, how that could have manifested itself in my work. So... Um, Fragmentation is a word that keeps coming up because the, the city of Belfast is extremely fragmented and it's not just in explicit ways, it's also implicit. It's um, very much imagined, it's very much a, a sense of safety, a sense of well-being. It's a, a deeply psychological environment to be in, I think, for, for anybody. And because I was flanking this existence of being an outside observer and then also someone who's directly affected by it. It was uh, the tensions are there in my work as well. Then, and I became very aware of the contradictions that take place. So. Thank you. Um, I think we leave it here for the moment. What we will do is we'll move on to to the next works and the next artists. There will be plenty of time at the end for um, question and answers. But otherwise, I feel that we will launch into a discussion now and we'll have no time for, for what is still to come. So maybe we swap around and we move on to, to Ruth Goddard, who was uh, born in East London, South Africa, and also came, in this case, to London for her, um, one of her degrees and stayed and sees South Africa from here, from this angle, another perspective of a different kind of closeness or distance again to, to what, what went on at home. Um, the, the images, yeah. Right, I'm Ruth Goddard, a South African artist living now in London. Um, first, what I'm going to do is tell you a little bit about my general practice, uh, and then I will show you three examples of work um, that deal with the notion of conflict. Um, in my practice, I um, am constantly examining themes of trauma, violence, and mourning. Um, I was born under apartheid, and I grew up witnessing a change in government and a body of people trying to redefine who they were as people and how they fitted into this, this new shift in society. Um, my work 
is not so much about the politics, but more bearing witness to the act of change. Um, it often alludes to a violent act, but there is an emphasis within the work, or I hope there is, um, on an understatement, on, on not trying to create more aggression or propaganda about it, but rather as quieter, more contemplative approach. Um, my interest in making um, work about my personal identity and childhood history and about now being a displaced citizen all relate to, or I think I could easily describe as a state of mourning. It's something that you, you probably all experienced. Um, because, if you bear with me for a minute, this, this act of mourning reveals to us what is important and it reflects an understanding of, of who we are. So it, it kind of highlights um, the ties that we have with other people. And in the words of um, Judith Butler, it, these ties are, um, constitute who we are, the ties and bonds that compose us. So when these ties are broken and disrupted, we question who and what we are and what we should do next. Um, it is this state of questioning, this feeling vulnerable, and this, this, this sense of exposure um, that embodies what I try to communicate. I suppose. If I, if I start with this, this first work, um, this is a body of work called Quiet Violence. There are a number of works in this series, and I'm going to show you two examples from it. Um, there are two on show at the gallery at the moment, so you can go and see them. Um, this is just paper, and I have carved into the surface of the paper bullet holes. Um, with this work, I've added nothing. It's only been slightly picked and very little removed. It is still, in, as it were, a full piece of paper. Um, what we as artists do, I suppose, Helen has touched on, um, Helen, Gwen has touched on slightly, is is we try and do um, or try and describe that which words can't. And for me, this is, is an attempt to explain that we never come to anything with nothing. We always have a point of reference. There is always something on that blank piece of paper before we start. So these, this, in a way, represents that, that notion that the slate is not clean, um, and I, I suppose this was highlighted to me when I moved to London and at three o'clock in the middle of winter I was panicked <laughs> to walk the streets and when it was dark um, and then realised only in retrospect that this, you know, it's, it's not necessarily a normal thing but within South African context you're very guarded about your own personal safety and, and you, you know, you, you, you learn to navigate your life in such a way um, that is just natural. And only being removed from that did I start to question what is normal. Um, in terms of the medium of the work, there's, a, there's another strong relationship between um, bullets and target practice and paper and um, sort of making a game of it in a sense and shooting targets. Um, and the... The reason for choosing bullet holes 
in, in one sense, was um, having read newspapers and reading South African texts. There was a lot of talk, um, and guns and, and bullets and things are, are part of the texts that we read about farm violence and people getting shot. And so what I did was I, I, I wrote a catalogue of the different um, types of bullets that were used and then, and then made images of them. So this is... This is I think they're actually the same close up. The second work um, is called Recanted History. Um, it is a sort of a precursor work to the show, which is currently a piece of work which is currently on show, um, which is titled The Persistent History. Um, it revolves around a childhood memory of mine, which happened in 1994 when I was 12. Um, Nelson Mandela had just been made president and as I sat in my primary school classroom a box of books arrived and we unpacked from the shelves the old history textbooks and we packed onto the shelves the new ones. This was a bit of a, a turning point for me and it was the first time when I realised that all that I had been told and taught and all that I had learned and wrote learned and written out and been tested on isn't necessarily true. That it is all just a perspective. And, you know, history is written by the victor. So there is a sense of, you know, as, as governments come and go, things, things start to move and change. This particular work is three pieces of paper stretched within embroidery hoops and embossed. So again, there is nothing added to the paper. It is all just pushing through the skin. It is there before we even start anything. The story isn't embroidered. It's all very simple. Um, and it's three simple sentences which say, um, I remember the day the teacher threw away our history books. Uh, we then opened boxes and unpacked our new history. I recognised the characters, but none of the stories. This was made here when I did a, a postgraduate diploma at Byam Shaw, and it's, it was something that stuck with me because it was quite a strong turning point or a, a strong moment in my life that I realised that I started to really question this notion of history and um, what is right and what is truthful. Um, and it led me to make the next body of work. If I can find it. Show you the, this is the um, installation shot of the work, which is now currently on show. Um, it is 27 pencil drawings of um, pages from South African textbooks. And it's set up um, loosely like a timeline. At the bottom are textbooks from the 80s through to the 90s, and at the top, a textbook from 2000. This is my life in South Africa from early 80s till 2004. Um, and my, my little um, run-in with history textbooks happens right in the middle. What I wanted to do with this, or what I wanted to find out for myself, was just how um, 
how my memory and what truly existed, um, what the difference was. Were things growing stories in my head? Were they much stronger than I believed? And, and so I went back and sourced these textbooks from the 80s, which had been actually been pulped and reused, you know, um, reused as recycled paper to print new textbooks. So the history kind of repeats itself. So I had to find um, the author of the textbooks. And um, got, he gave me, very sweetly, some of his copies. And at the bottom, uh, for example, this one, it was very matter-of-fact, um, and it was about... The, the, narr- the narratives in the book were mostly about finding land, discovering, um, moving in, and there was nothing that you could particularly argue with. Um, then, through the middle of the timeline, as it were, there, all of a sudden you start to see more stories about black South Africans, about people who were there before. And right at the end, in 2000, you can see the um, titles through the textbooks and things like that. The pendulum has swung completely from one perspective to the other, where the discussion is now that instead of discovering land, land has been removed from somebody else's possession. So... In a way, this is a, um, a sort of a, a visual um, map of um, current thought and opinion. Um, what I did was I raised, I faithfully copied out and drew out these textbook pages, and then I erased more heavily the 80s texts and slightly lighter and lighter erased the text from the top but never fully removed the image because the, the history and the thought um, will live on through people and can never fully be removed. And I think to fully remove history would be a disastrous thing altogether. So I think that's well. I'll leave it. the next video, um, we've decided to swap things around a little bit and uh, Adela Yusic will first um, introduce the work a little bit and then we will we'll show it. Um, Adela was born in Sarajevo and still uh, works in, lives in, in Sarajevo and of the three um, artists and their works, she will uh, present the most uh, personal, um, immediate experience of conflict. So I decided to first um, talk about the video and then to show it because sometimes after I show it, uh, the situation becomes a little bit uncomfortable and I don't feel good <laughs> sitting here. So I would first reflect to the um, art in conflict, the way I see it when it comes to Bosnia. Um, I made some like short notes so I don't forget anything. I fe- fear a little bit standing here. I'm not so used to speaking to a lot of people and it's my first time in London also. So. I can say that maybe art can uh, speak about the causes of conflict, about the consequences of conflict, about the conflict itself, and of course it can challenge the the prevailing discourses. 
When it comes to Bosnia, I think it's very important because our three main prevailing discourses are nationalist, ethnical, and religious. And I feel, I mean, this is this as the biggest problem that we have because these discourses don't let enough space for maybe more important things like that we have 17% of people living under the line of poverty, that we have 20,000 raped women from the war who have no social help or security or anything or, you know, psychological help, we never had one, that we have such a, a lot of corruption and things like that, and these discourses don't let any of these problems come into the public except only when they serve their own um, agenda, and this is very problematic. And there I see that artists don't, are not, of course, catalysts of some huge changes, but they do have a power to show um, these problems from, let's say, it can be a didactic way, it can be emotional, personal, and these works can also touch international audience and show, you know, the, the situation that actually we are dealing there in the post-conflict society, so to say. Um, the work Sniper was made a uh, long time ago, like five, five years ago, and um, it is a very simple work that uses uh, only the image of my hand, that is a drawing a circle, the photography of my father when he was 33 years old, so it was like uh, two months before he died or something like that, and I think it's very interesting maybe to say that a lot of Bosnian soldiers have made these photos during the war, so they was like leaving these photographs for their families in case they get killed, because I mean that this was uh, something that would be like more likely to happen. So this was the one that he gave to my mother and he said, okay, this is in case you get killed. And basically, because my house was burned during the war, this was the only photo that we had left. Uh, later we collected like two or three more. So I, in trying to reconstruct a kind of like a memory of him or, and to make this video, it was somehow really um, logical that I would use this photo. And um, then what I'm using is also a reconstruction of the text from a notebook that I found about uh, when he died, which is actually because he was the sniper at the Bosnian army. And he used to list how many soldiers he kills every time he goes to the front line. So I'm also using the reconstruction of this uh, text. And what I was also asked at one interview is like, is it important that I'm not taking sides in this video? I said that um, it is not about taking or not taking sides because I am taking a side, first of a child, of a soldier, second of, you know, somebody who, who was there in the war. <clears throat> so, but the truth is that the video does not say anywhere explicitly about which, like, which uh, army did he belong to or whatever. So this was quite... Um, problematic for, for in certain cases in showing it in the region. Like, okay, who was your father? Was he a Muslim or was he a Serb? You know, because he was a sniper. So, But I think it's still important to say that because I don't know how, how well do you know the situation, but Sarajevo was surrounded by um, army, the Serb army during the war, and <clears throat> it was sieged for three years. And basically, the, one of the biggest problems were the snipers because they... Um, did not allow us to move, to get water supplies, food, and everything. So this was really one of the biggest problems. And then soon after the war started, uh, the Bosnian National Army uh, organized this anti-snipers unit who were supposed to actually 
you know, kill those snipers from the hills who were targeting uh, children, civilians, everybody. There are some statistics that say that around 40% of Bosnian children were aimed at by the snipers. And this was something that you regularly would see every day on the street. And, but those were not just Serb snipers. Those were like professional snipers from Bulgaria, Serbia, from Bulgaria, Russia, from all of these um, East Bloc countries. The one that would like were awarded snipers, you know, the, it was um, unbelievable. So they were very, very precise. What I would also like to mention before playing the video a little bit is that um, at the moment I'm working on another body of work that is connected again to the snipers after so many years again, because there is this video game that was recently re, re uh, how do you say published. And it is the video game of a Polish company, which is called City Interactive, which is the international publisher, developer, and distributor of, of interactive entertainment products that sells in more than 40 countries, which was established in 2002. So the problem is that this, this um, computer game, uh, the last one was called Sniper Ghost Warrior 1, and it earned millions. <clears throat> the second one is now uh, published. And a huge part of the video game is um, set up in Sarajevo. So it's in the siege Sarajevo. It all looks the same as 1993. But the problem is that now American soldiers are, uh, you are the American soldier who is killing the, the Serb war crimes. Um, so, and in 1993, basically, we had no international help, especially regarding to this. So I think this, is, this, is, this really was something that terrified me when I saw it because um, it immediately reminds you of your four-year experience of escaping snipers, and it is somehow really wrong that this, in 10 years, this is a kind of a rewriting the history because, you know, children will sit there, maybe even Bosnian children, and think that 1993 they were saved by the American soldiers or somehow. So I now just... Um, Maybe so if you have any anything else, Gwen. Maybe just no, no, no. Okay, thank you.
November the 1st, one soldier. November the 2nd, one soldier, one truck driver. November the 4th, three soldiers. November the 5th, one soldier, three soldiers. November the 6th, two soldiers. November the two soldiers, one truck one driver. Car driver. November the 10th, two, two soldiers. November the 11th, one truck driver, one soldier, two soldiers. November the 12th, three soldiers. November one the 13th, soldier. four soldiers. November the 15th, two one soldiers. soldier. November the 16th, one truck driver, one soldier. The 18th, one soldier, one three soldiers. November the 20th, two soldiers. November the 21st, two soldiers. November two soldiers. the 22nd, one soldier. November the 23rd, one soldier. One soldier. November the 24th, one truck driver, three soldiers. November the 26th, one soldier. Two soldiers, one truck driver. November three soldiers, one soldier. One soldier, one soldier, one soldier, one soldier, four soldiers, two soldiers, one truck driver, one soldier, two soldiers, three soldiers, December the first soldiers, one soldier, one soldier, four soldiers, one soldier, December the third. My father, the sniper, was shot by a sniper into his right eye. difficult to move on with a discussion after something like this, as Adela had told us. Um, so maybe we um, start with, with uh, your work and then open it up again, tying in some of the other works and also uh, Jonathan's reflections. And I was wondering if you perhaps still could tell us what compelled you to make the work and to actually make it also so, so public, your, your family story, your family um, uh, history and also what the reactions would have been from your family as well as others. So who are works made for and who reacts to in this particular case um, are quite I think, prominent parts. Well, mm, when I was making it, I, I really haven't 
thought that I would be exhibiting it all around. So I made it somehow for, was, was my personal task for myself. Second, um, my family never saw it. My mother never saw it. My sister did. My grandmother, she died in the, media. in the meantime, she never saw it because I felt that it's not good for them to see it. And maybe they would not even, I mean, they don't understand the, the contemporary art or all the things I'm doing, but I did not want to have my mother um, exposed to this. And um, the reactions are always different. As I told you, I had the really um, strange reactions in the region, first of all, like in, for example, in Serbia or in Republic of Srpska, which is a Serb part of Bosnia. And then also I had strange reactions from the Muslim part of community because they were, um, they asked like always, uh, why didn't I say that this is a, uh, that he was a Muslim somehow or whatever then, but also the, some of the Serbian part of the community was saying, oh yeah, they see, they also had snipers, you know, they were killing people also. And things like that, so it was always um, differently understood, but then on the other hand, uh, I saw that it has been um, uh, striking to the people because of the fact that it goes from this quite general uh, numbers part to a very personal part at the end. And this kind of uh, switch and to the actual photo, to the actual person, and I think it's really important because all we hear in, in, this, in the countries like mine that survived the war even after 20 years is this numbers and just the constant numbers who kind of dehumanize the victims. And I think that if you show it in a, through the personal story that it has much more power, that people um, can relate to it much better than just seeing, you know, um, you know, like this, like there was a person shot and you have initials. You don't have the actual, you know, uh, this uh, emotional relation to these numbers. And of course also what, what is the huge problem in Bosnia still is this fighting about, arguing about the numbers of people killed. You have like all those different statistics and who, like um, how many people was killed on that side of nation, national side and this ethnicity or that, you know, so this, I, I kind of wanted to connect this also to this discourse that we have, like to this, this numbering of victims. Yes, and you, you said it initially, you, you didn't make it to, to show it really as a... As I, it took me one year before I showed it for the first time. So I don't know, I, I haven't been thinking about how it will uh, affect the, the audience. Mm -hmm. To tell you honestly, and I was quite young at that time, I was like 24, so... Mm -hmm. What did change when you decided to, to show it? I mean, first of all, perhaps it was a more personal way of working through perhaps the, the experience of the war. I was really uh, encouraged by friends, some of them, some older generation of artists, and so I, I don't know, that's how it went. Mm -hmm. And you, you mentioned before, and maybe this is something that we can also discuss in other settings like South Africa or Northern Ireland um, or Iraq, um, uh, that artists might be the ones carving a certain space for discussions which can't be taking place or don't take place elsewhere because maybe they're too, the issues are too inconvenient for politicians or too risky for others. Um, uh, that, seems to be, that seems to be the case in, in Bosnia. Yeah, artists have this luxury to kind of uh, stay away from the nationalist kind of, you know. Because mm -hmm. um, even if you're a politician, a young one, they always embrace you as a part of their, you know, their stream or whatever. And, 
And being an artist, I think we have much, we have bigger freedom to say things that even politicians would not, or sometimes even activists would not, because they're not going to get funds, or you know. So, mm -hmm. thank you. Maybe we will come back to some of this. Maybe we open it up a bit more. And I think, um, to me, what runs through the three three uh, bodies of work, really, um, if you add the ones in the gallery as well. Um, it's really that each work includes lots of different layers and the, um, uh, the contrast between a lot of precision or cataloging as well as erasing, taking things away, making us look several times to, to understand the different, different layers and the videos also, the layers of sound and image. And they seem um, very, very appropriate to capture the process of um, remembering, of rewriting, writing history, rewriting it, revisiting it, um, and also in, in, the, in the last work we just, we've just seen. And they all seem to completely subvert the idea that there could be a linear story, which is perhaps often um, what a history book would attempt to do, or what perhaps um, our, our memory constructs uh, something that makes sense. Um, but as he's driving around the taxi driver, tr memories are triggered that don't all fit, and um, he seems to censor some of them, and he seems to hold back on others and sound more politically correct on, 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 on yet, yet further, further memories. Um, and similar with the, with the history books, his attempt, a conscious attempt to rewrite history um, and put out new history books, but then again, sort of probably always walking into, into or falling into several traps along, along the way. Um, I was wondering if we could um, tie in Jonathan and, and perhaps you have some additional kind of reflections on this, but also tell us a bit more about um, your work in Iraq, where clearly, again, we're dealing with a context of a very recent sort of the aftermath of conflict. Uh, yes, just to, um, to also uh, uh, follow on, actually, from observations that that Gwen has made. I mean, the, the intensity of the drawing, and there's a lot of drawing in this exhibition, and, um, and you know, that has uh, left a, uh, you know, makes a strong impression on me, and the kind of drawing that it is. I mean, it's very intense drawing, and it's very meticulous drawing. It's not, it's not drawing with a kind of um, uh, abstract expressionist dash, you know, it's it's a, a drawing that is is very concentrated, and suggests um, catharsis and something therapeutic as well. I, you know, something's being worked out, and and the the repetition of the gesture in the last film, particularly, you know, there is um, um, you know something in that. I mean, it it feels a little uh, you know, it's worked up, it's autistic, it's like a mantra, it's it's. You know, it, it's it's something that um, you know through repetition involves, yes, yeah, you know, maybe some sort of meditation or or opening up a space in which to reflect on something, and to, and and you can't talk about it. The 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 enumerating of um, of of death is 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 enough, you know, rather than going into much sort of detail. It reminds me very much of the work of On Kawara, the Japanese artist who was, a, was alive and still alive uh, through, the, through the time of Hiroshima and, and Nagasaki and, and accompanying his paintings of dates. What he would do every day was, was um, make a painting which basically 
uh, was an inscription of the date on which the painting was made, and it would take 24 hours. If it took longer than 24 hours, he'd destroy the painting, but it's the most meticulously paint, painted date of the date on which the painting was made. And, um, and he would accompany these paintings with diary entries, and it, it could be copying out you know, what he'd read in the newspaper that day, but sometime in the uh, early 70s, he, d- he decided to stop doing that, and, and basically he'd tell you what day of the week it was, or, or just the date, as if that was enough. And, and, the, and, the, and the gesture, the repetition of it, is not dissimilar, I think, to that of the prisoner in the, in the prison cell, sort of locked in somehow, and... and, and, and almost as an existentialist gesture, you know, this kind of very basic I was, was here uh, somehow, something quite desperate. And, and uh, you know, it, your drawing, your drawing from the, the, the textbook is your drawing, it's sort of drawing the plants in this uh, estate. And the drawing, I mean, there really is, um, I, mean, you could have, I mean, it could have been digital, you could have filmed it, you could have worked it out that way, but the very fact that you were making uh, connection um, through through a physical gesture, making a mark, making a trace, is uh, is key, and it's something uh, that I I've seen sort of time and time again through my work as a, uh, as a curator. I've worked a lot in Palestine too, by the way, and uh, you know I see similarities uh, there, and as the reason why I took on Kawara's work to Palestine, I made a an exhibition. Uh, as part of the Palestinian biennial of, of his work, because I felt that that his experience and his rather philosophical observation on what it was like just being alive but locked in and having been so traumatized was something that could be identified uh, with by by Palestinians. Another thing too that I've noticed with with uh, many Palestinian artists is that the last thing they want to do is is make a work about checkpoints. And the last thing they want to do is make a drawing of, of a wall. Um, machine guns is something that they're not particularly keen on, on drawing either. And, and, that, and that is very much consistent with my experience in, in Iraq. That um, the artists that I'm working with that will be on show in Venice are all living and working there, unlike other uh, presentations of work by Iraqi artists. In Venice, for example, the last pavilion featured uh, maybe half a dozen artists, but they were all living elsewhere in Helsinki or New York or Berlin, etc. And from that distance, I think they felt they could make more generalized observations on on the history and the politics, recent politics and history of of Iraq. But, uh, But what I've seen has been uh, and what we're showing is is more personal and bears some resemblance to the kind of strategy that you've adopted. In this exhibition, it's significant that that all the artists are women, I think, and both the curators are women. I think it would be really interesting to talk about that. In Iraq, there aren't that many women artists. Well, that, frankly, there aren't that many artists uh, really at all. But that doesn't mean that there aren't a lot of other creative things going on and, and our exhibition will place emphasis on that. I mean, carpets are being made, people are making cartoons, people are, are, are doing, uh, making music, all kinds of things um, that are um, uh, means by which they sort of express uh, 
what it is that they've been, been going through. But one of the women artists, uh, it was actually really much a, ca- a case in point, um, she, she does paint oil on canvas, and I went to visit her in her studio, which essentially was a basement in her house, and that's very often the case. Galleries usually are museums of basements in people's houses, and their studios are, are, are where they lived for a number of reasons, uh, because moving around is so difficult. I mean, talking about what it was like uh, in London at 3 o'clock and being reminded of how dangerous it was to... Um, uh, to move around in South Africa or in some places in South Africa. Well, it's, it's like that in Baghdad. It's much easier to stick around, you know, um, you know where, where you live. Um, but this artist, Shiman Ismail in Suleimania in Kurdistan, which is a safer place in, in Iraq, the north of Iraq, Kurdistan is... is um, it's nothing like Baghdad in that respect. Not insecure, but then, you know, people... People do get killed there. And, and she, um, she has res- resorted to painting all the objects uh, in her house, the domestic objects, the lunch boxes, the television sets, the refrigerators. And she covers them with these small motifs. They could be heart-shaped, they could be stars. It's a way of personalizing these objects, these manufactured objects, but it also feels a bit like what it is that that, um, that we've been looking at and, and, and what you see very much in the gallery, a, um, a kind of, um, it's almost like a healing uh, practice, I think. And, I, you know, and, and it's something that in, in many different ways is, is what's coming through the work that we're selecting for the Iraqi pavilion. It wasn't, I didn't arrive there with that as a proposition and that you know, we were going to make a an exhibition with a dash of optimism and um, a theme of healing. But that is coming through, not very sentimentally, I, I hope. And, um, and uh, I hope that you, you come and see it and give me your observations because there are so many correspondences. Not so many women, though, and loads, uh, loads in the exhibition of, uh, of yours. I mean, I could. Can I ask that? Can I put that forward as a as a question then? Why, why so? Why aren't there any men in in your show? Um, let me make a stab at that, and maybe Helen wants to wants to follow up on that. Um, we didn't start out with this particular brief, um, uh, but it materialised like this, and it seemed wherever we were looking, and we were looking um, for artists in this group show in different ways. Um, uh, in terms of the genre, in, in terms of their subject matter, their locations, and we just came across more and more interesting um, f- women artists um, engaging in these issues. It would be hard to generalize that this is now, that this holds more generally, that there's something um, to do with gender and contemporary art on, on uh, violent conflicts or under sort of more, sort of more subtle um, underlying um, lines of conflict. <laughs> Um, but we, we, we thought it was interesting and we wanted to put it out there and we were increasingly quite happy with that that, that emerged like this without starting out like that but um, it was the, the, the end result and it would be more interesting now to, to look um, further afield to see whether that's um, um, something we find elsewhere as well maybe, maybe some of you have, have views on that and, and are you kind of um, lonely voices or more, more women among your contemporary artist friends in the various settings is that something you're also very aware of in your work? Um, 
I know about your work, you, you are. Um, does that does that play a play a role, the gender aspect? I don't know. I'm looking at Miriam, but we don't have to go in this order. <laughs> Thanks, Paul. I don't know. The, um, I do think that the work there's often quite a masculine side to to work that's made about Northern Ireland, in Northern Ireland, or by Northern Irish artists. And I noticed that about this show that the, it's very unmasculine. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes it feminine, but I, I think it's very unmasculine. Mm-hmm. Something about it. You mean also in terms of the genre, the, the emphasis on often drawing and yeah, combining the, the, drawing with other yeah. the processes and the and also just the the quality of the work and um, the treatment of it and yeah, did notice that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, it doesn't, doesn't seem to work very well. Yes, yes, we'll lean forward. I think throughout the show, um, particularly, um, there is a much sort of quieter, more slowly considered approach. I think um, whether that's a, a female trait or not, I'm not entirely sure, but um, from what I've started to look at from other artists that I've um, studied in the past um, work made by um, in a more male way is is quite a lot more loud and aggressive or um, what's the word I'm looking for um, in, your face. in your face whereas this seems to navigate a much quieter more conversational approach to it um, a more sort of personal look through this is this is what I think rather than here is an opinion. It's more a discussion. So I don't know, if described like that in the face or something, then my work would be a masculine <laughs> <laughs> loud and in the face, whatever. I don't know, I don't I don't believe that we should ascribe any of these um media or whatever to feminine or masculine, I think we should be able to use any of those without fearing that we'll go to you know, an extreme of being masculine or feminine, because I don't want to be there. Um, but the thing is that there is, of course, uh, if, we, if you speak about war and um, conflict and things like that, then the, the women's approach is, of course, a little bit different in most of the cases, because these discourses uh, women are absent from them uh, and from these theories, you know, for the f- also, and from the discourses especially. So I think that they, ha- they can then, because of that, present certain things in a little bit different way, and maybe that's where we can recognize that it is maybe a female work, not, you know, because it has a, some feminine... Um, uh, technique or something like that, just because maybe you see that this is spoken from the this um, the, the position which is not like you know on the top. Yeah, I um, and and you know and Onkawara is not a woman, and actually most of the artists that are, I'm dealing with uh, aren't. So I the last thing I would I would want to uh, suggest that there was. Um, feminine uh, uh, aesthetic but it is something that's come you know but it you've arrived at that in your show and it, you know as um, as curators well, as a curator for me if I saw that happening in my exhibition and I think my god I'd have to have a man I'd have to put a man in there or at least one or two in order to make it clear 
to to those encountering the exhibition that you know that I wasn't making that point. So I mean, were you? Did you? I mean, how did you? I mean, did you arrive at that and then say, look, don't worry about it, we'll just do it anyway? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think we ever worried about it at all. Um, <laughs> so I think um, uh, it was exactly um, um, something we, we endorsed. So we didn't want to... I mean, I think that would be one way of reacting, saying, let's also have a few men. And then the other way around, it probably happens more often. You have um, uh, a lot of male um, artists and you add um, uh, a couple of women in there. So the nice thing was that that didn't come about like that at all. So that we went by very strong work and uh, work that we thought fit together well, also not worrying about what was a female aesthetic or not, um, but by the quality of the work. And then it, it stands on its own. It doesn't need any... Um, uh, almost an apology that we also have men obviously working on similar topics. Um, so I think that's, that's what I took from it and why I thought it was exciting. But maybe Helen would like to add anything to this. So, I mean, like, exactly as you said, we, we didn't present out to choose women, but as, as the process developed and they were well women, we were quite mm-hmm. Yeah, it would have felt almost odd going, almost going back on this to add something else to it than once we had arrived at that, that selection. More to do with the quality of the work, the, the formal connections. The space is quite small, so um, they had the work, the show had to work both. It had to work formally um, in terms of not just subject matter, but actually in terms of um, aesthetic. I suppose you know it had to work um, because there wasn't much space. Mm-hmm. Yes. should perhaps say at this point um, uh, uh, other artists included in the show are um, uh, a German artist Christina Baumgartner um, Kay Yoland um, who's sitting in the audience as well uh, British Canadian artist uh, Nadia Kabilinke, Tunisian artist um, living in Germany um, and Nina Espar a Lebanese artist uh, living and working in, in Paris and also Rita Donner uh, a different, an older generation of an artist um, dealing with very similar issues, uh, focusing on, on Ireland in the work that we're showing uh, from the 1970s and 80s. Um, I hope I haven't forgotten anybody. <laughs> Maybe we should, at this point, open it up. Yes. Sure. Well, now is your opportunity. I'm sure you've all been waiting very patiently. This is your opportunity to ask some questions of the panelists. If you would, there are microphones. Well, if you indicate you'd like to ask a question, Mr. Sloan, come to you with a microphone. If you'd like to introduce yourself, you don't have to, but if you'd like to give your name and your affiliation, that would be fine. Thank you very much for sharing your practices. I'm, I'm Eva Bencheva. I'm from the School of and the reception that it got there. So I wanted to ask the other two artists, um, how do you see your work's relationship to your, to your viewers or your audience as well? Because especially with a topic like conflict, where you do deal with something that's very personal to you, um, h- how do you see the role of the viewer's engagement in your work? I'm sorry, how do I see the role of... How do you see the role of the viewer? Well, I think that in this case, that I mean, this is what I've seen so far, and mostly um, 
they become so passive at the point where the work is shown and, and the work is kind of active. And there's this strange relation of not being able to respond to it. But as I spoke to the people later, the, it, it, led, uh, it, it has left some stronger impacts. And some of them tell me, and I will never forget that the work at the end and the, the power of this, you presenting something so horrible, but, but I mean, you know, I bet that a lot of you people have lived through the personal family member's death. So presenting something so uh, emotional, but in a very kind of a cold way. You know, it is actually what makes you um, remember it because, and this is because it is a fact. You know, I really wanted it to have it as a fact, but at the same time to get this um, to, to be able to provoke some kind of uh, emotion. So, but because I think that uh, what we lived through, in, in through during the four, time, four years of war is all horrifying, and after so many years we are able to present it uh, as something that is actually, it is just a fact, it's something that happens. And even now people tell me like, uh, after they see it, like, oh, I'm so sorry, your father is dead. It's like, it's okay, it's been 20 years ago, you know. I'm fine now, <laughs> it's no problem. It is not a problem, and it is not the work that is supposed to uh, provoke the empathy. It's just supposed to make you think, because I don't need the empathy. I, I got over that trauma, you know, a long time ago. I need, what I wanted is actually also to, to through these different layers of tone and voice and contradictions in between what is presented and how is it presented to try to make people uh, have another um, way of thinking about certain things like is death in the war or whatever. Um, yeah, I think the, the main thing an artist would like to achieve is for the audience to come away and have a slightly, possibly slightly new view or perspective on, on something. And I think that's as much as you could ever hope for, really. My work is, even though it originates in personal experience, I do try and step back from it as well and remain objective, or at least present it in an objective way, and in a way that is, um, I leave the door open for the audience as well. So um, that is as much as I could wish for, is for somebody to take something from it and to possibly gain an understanding or a new understanding, new perspective from it. I would just like to add that I think that with, uh, when you work with the personal experience, as an artist, there is no way you can make mistakes. If you work with other people's experiences, especially in subjects like, I don't know, conflict, death, war, whatever, it's really touchy and it's hard because um, you're always into this trap to uh, kind of abuse other people's experience or to misrepresent it or you know not to understand it to misunderstand it and when you work with your own experience it, it is there's is no way to um, make mistakes and there's no way that your if you involve your emotions that you usually have in regarding to your experiences then it, it is it is more likely that you will have a success that the audience will have some kind of emotional response to it I suppose for me it's, it's the same thing. I, I make work which is quite quiet and quite unassuming when you, when you see it for the first time. And it's often described as something aesthetically pleasing. So I find a lot of people go up to them and, and look at them and say, well, that's quite beautiful. 
and then are slightly shocked or slightly worried when they start to actually engage with it that it is a bullet hole or it's a, you know, the piece of text that has been carefully and quite beautifully transcribed is actually something quite awful in itself. And I suppose, for me, that's, that's what, I, what I tried, what I hope to achieve, is a slight disruption for the viewer. And, and just to make you start thinking about things, as opposed to saying, well, here is an opinion, and this is what I think about it. For me, it's more saying, well, I've been thinking about this. Here is, here is you know, a, a way to access what I've been thinking about. You know, now, now it's your turn, if you want to. Thank you very much for the presentation. My name is Jesse. I'm a PhD student here at the LSE. And um, I have first question for Adela because I also lived in Bosnia and, you know, the cultural situation now in Bosnia is not very rosy. And I guess that artists really have to struggle you know, to be able to present their works because a lot of galleries have been recently closed and a lot of exhibition spaces as well. So I was wondering how difficult it is for you to be an artist in Bosnia and how difficult to you to actually make a living out of it, you know, out of, uh, from like an econ economic perspective. And then one question for the rest of you is, do you consider the art that you're doing that it could be, so to speak, transcending all of these... Um, you know, divisions and diversities in those societies where you live. And uh, as Jonathan Watkins was saying, uh, what healing effects the art that you are doing can actually have on these post-conflict societies. Um, economic situation. I hate to speak about this subject because I, I don't live out of the art, rarely. Barely I can sometimes maybe survive out of it because I don't make also work that is so sellable and that somebody wants to hang on the wall. But on the other hand, now I'm, I'm also a student of the MA course in Human Rights and Democracy, and that's why I have a great scholarship. It's an interdisciplinary program, so it saves me now, <laughs> so I can survive. But I am happy because I gained the opportunity with this to exhibit all around. And coming from Bosnia for young people, it is almost impossible to travel, first of all, because of the living standards that are very low. Every country is like 10 times more expensive to us than, than our own. And then I think that this also traveling and international cultural experience also um, has helped me a lot to overcome my own, you know, uh, issues with... Um, with, that we deal, that we're dealing in, with the, in the country, and this is what I think is really also important for the artists if they get the opportunity to exhibit and travel. And um, yeah, the, all the museums are closed. The Bosnian National Gallery is closed. Um, there is just not enough money for for the culture, and there is just enough money for the political campaigns, uh, nationalist ones. And this is also a huge problem. And I think. It will not be sold for a very, very long time. Um, so I don't know. I'm not going to complain about it. All the artists are in the same position. Just some of them are in different ones, and that's how it is. But we still continue working because this is something I love to do, and that's it. To address your second part of your question. Um, can you hear me? Sorry, I've got a bit of laryngitis, so I'm, I'm trying my best to get to the back. Um, in terms of a healing effect on societies, I, I 
make the work to try and make sense of things for myself. And what I've found or what I often find is when you're brave enough to stand up and say, this is what I experience, a lot of people around you turn around and say, well, thank goodness I'm not alone. So it's not necessarily that I want to go out and, you know, heal broken societies or fix things. It's not about fixing things. It's just about questioning things and about bringing these things to the fore. Um, for example, the textbook work that I'm showing um, is very particular to South Africa. And yes, the textbooks have been rewritten numerous times within the last 10 years even. But it's not just a South African debate. I mean, in the UK now, they're busy debating what history textbooks should contain in, you know, at GCSE level or A level and are being rewritten and... and you know, so it's it's a it's an international issue. So it's more just about bringing these sort of questions to people, so that they don't just sort of sit back and say, "Okay, well, if you say that's what it is, fine, we'll we'll take it." Um, well, the trauma of the the last thirty years in Northern Ireland, I think, um, an awful lot of people, I don't think, have ever dealt with it or have had any access to ways of dealing with it and I think it's, a lot of it is internalised and people quite often don't like to talk about it um, it's, it's a tricky one to a tightrope to kind of walk really as an artist and um, again like Ruth I think I would only hope to open up a conversation about something like that just to, to give people some kind of um, platform to start talking about it or bring it out to, up to the, the surface, really. I don't think there's, um, I could ever hope to heal. But it's, it's about, it is actually about talking, really. And that's the stage, you know, that things are at in Northern Ireland as well. They still need to, still need to talk about it. I should also mention that, uh, in response to the last question, I mean, visas, it's not as if there's completely free travel. You know, visa was, it wasn't a problem, but... It, it was it, a problem. I had okay. to, it well, was a huge problem. I had worse problems. <laughs> uh, depends what you're... I had what to collect one million documents. Problem. It was awkward, and it was, uh, you know, so that's also a factor. It's also a factor for academics, actually, in, yes. if we're trying to organize conferences with people from the Western Balkans. And former Soviet Union, actually, these access is, is a huge issue. So, yes, sorry. Hi, uh, I'm Paul, and I have a question, I think, specifically for uh, Miriam. I was very interested by the uh, inclusion of the marching band music alongside that, <laughs> alongside the uh, Jimmy Story. Jimmy Story was a very personal, individual experience of the troubles in Northern Ireland. And uh, I know that growing up back home in the Republic, um, the marching band music was almost the soundtrack for a summer of a sort of dominant, overarching media narratives which were quite broad and very unpersonal. And I wonder if by including that music you risked losing some of the uh, individual experience that uh, Jimmy was communicating through what he was saying. Um, the, well, 
Possibly. Uh, the music is a Blood and Thunder session that I went to and recorded in Carrickfergus. And it was only later that I decided to include it. It was like, um, I don't know if people know what Blood and Thunder sessions are, but it's where they stand, would tend to stand in a circle and they beat the, the lambeg drum and they will thunder the, you know, just keep thundering the drums until their wrists bleed. So it's, um, and it's quite a macho... Uh, pursuit, and I guess you know there's a possibility I pushed it too far in that respect, but it was um, the soundtrack was just what I decided to include and and work with the the rhythm of the film. So. Oh yes. Thank you. Um, uh, my name's Claire Abbott, and I'm an artist. And thank you very much for your presentations. I wonder if, um, in, uh, it, when you were growing up, was there any public art in the way that in Belfast the murals are such a striking feature of life and played a part during the Troubles and still today? Um, was there any public art of that kind that maybe affected you? You're talking to me? All of you, actually. <laughs> Just wondering in, in, in the different, you know, your, your different backgrounds, did that play a part? Um, when I grew up, the predominant sort of body of fine art, or, there was a, a very strong overreaching theme of protest art, art against apartheid, and art was very much something with a cause, you know, it had, it had a message, it had a direct, it had, you know, a positive and a negative, and they were driving against the negative, and um, coming, actually coming to do my undergraduate in um, Stellenbosch, I had a bizarre split of lecturers, the young lecturers, who were sort of post-apartheid um, fresh out of university, new lecturers um, who were not making this sort of resistant art and the older, more experienced lecturers who were resistance artists and very much thought art was about making something for a cause. And the younger artists completely became completely um, focused on their own personal experiences and so often we'd sit in a room and you'd have the two complete opposite you know perspectives so um, yes there was a lot of this strong visual art and I suppose um, where I've tried to position myself is somewhere within the middle where I'm not sort of navel gazing um, or beating a drum about a political issue and, you know, creating more propaganda myself and, and do, in doing so silencing other people's opinions in a way, but, but finding a, a medium ground where I'm talking about myself but talking about other issues as well. Creating a babe. When you speak about Sarajevo's public art, it was impossible, at least during the war, because this, the whole public space was um, narrowed to basements. So I think that's where we spent most of our time, and this was not the space where you could work, and there was no electricity or something like that. But what I can say is that during these four years, 
music was quite um, there was the, there existed a huge music scene of uh, a lot of young bands were playing as a form of resistance and this was very interesting because I don't know how did they made all of these songs without electricity it was just acoustic guitars and things but um, and there was also several artists who made some important work and these are the artists that are now quite um, uh, established in the international scene and these are the ones maybe they had like 20 years at the time 20 years old so um, but to tell you honestly I don't know any other examples of like some public art um, or some type of uh, protests or things because I think that surviving there every day was a form of a protest um, because I grew up between Germany and Ireland um, I was exposed more to was traditional art or high art, possibly through through Germany. But then, I do have very uh, striking memories of not so much art, but the iconography that was related to what was going on in Ireland, and it was also um, Catholic, Catholic strong Catholic iconography. So I do have very strong images that are quite isolated and hovering, um, and and then also the political iconography that would have. Like I, was, I grew up in Galway, so as a child, um, I absorbed a lot of the emotion and anger that happened around me from the adults around me. And I remember the, the images, the media images, more so than any kind of public art, but the, the images were often of paintings, of like, portraits of Bobby Sands. Or, um, so that's, that's as much as I can remember in terms of any kind of depiction, or visual imagery related to that yeah. uh, just a quick uh, um, sort of remark on what's the, the story in in Iraq and it is it's striking how many um, uh, comparisons one could make between Ireland and Iraq between the uh, Shia and the Sunni and you know in, in, in Ireland the Protestant and the Catholics the walls the, the the kind of thing that Jimmy said when you know referring to the way it used to be, we could all be living together and everything was kind of uh, okay then and how how since 2003 particularly in Baghdad those walls haven't gone down and the sectarian tension only increases and there uh, there are these uh, images that, that uh, go up the, the sheer worship of Hussein who's kind of like a poster boy of of the Shia and of course it's the Shia um, the marches and the demonstrations and, and the cathartic sort of um, blood-drawing uh, behavior, uh, you know, that usually ends their, um, their festivals. And they're attacked. They're attacked by the, by the Sunni. But the, the images that are increasingly go, going up on the blast walls are of Hussein, who looks remarkably like Che Guevara or Bobby Sands. You know, he's a real, you know, real freedom fighter. And... Um, and it's just it's astonishing how the dynamic is, is very familiar. I know that um, uh, Rita Donna's work on the hate blocks was inspired partly by this kind of graffiti public art uh, because she, she told me that uh, one of the things that got her thinking about the hitch, the imagery of the hate blocks was uh, on the Falls Road in the mid-70s. There was a huge gable wall with, which was painted white and then... Uh, massive black H, very symmetric, was painted onto it. 
And you know, she, when I was talking to her uh, about her work, she said that you know this was what really kind of got her thinking about the hedge blocks. It was just a very striking image, which most people would have just seen as anti-prop. Okay, any other questions? Yes, here. Thank you. My name's Susan. A uh, question for Adela. You talked at the beginning about how some people had made comments that the soldiers weren't uh, described as being of one side or the other. And I think it's very brave of you to portray your father as both a killer and a victim. And my question is whether you personally have had any comments from pacifists about how how this work was actually very powerful in terms of not glorifying war from either side. Well, I don't know, I mean, what could pacifists say about the war, you know, and about the killings if they haven't gone through any of those. So I don't think you, you we don't have these theories of pacifism in, in, in our country because um, we all know that um, we did not choose war and defense was the only thing that you could do. Oh, yeah, of course, there's another option was to escape, but not all of us had the opportunity to escape, of course. Most of us did not. So when they're always saying this pacifist, uh, uh, like, way of responding, it's like, yeah, but you could have all escaped or you shouldn't have fought back. Yeah, but then probably he, my father would not be the only one who would be dead. That would be me and my sister and my mother. So, I mean, um, these comments... Um, I, I had like several times, but then on the other hand, it is, uh, I don't think that this was a portraying my father as a killer. He was a 33 years old man who sold his um, uh, wife's jewelry, some gold that they had a little bit, and bought the M48 that was from 1960s or whatever, and, you know, just fought back for the bare survival, and that's it. I mean, this is what most of the young men and women did in, in my country, and I don't think that there was any other way. My mother was also in the army, um, and then she stayed in the army because this was the only way to survive, because uh, that way she had uh, some food every day home to me and my younger sister. So I don't think there is any other options when it comes to the actual war. This is something that, that is a, a natural response. Yes, over here. Hello, uh, Anita. I wanted to. Sorry. Oh. Uh, I wanted to ask you creating art is a very private and very individual process, and you've come together as a group of artists who have a subject in common, but you haven't worked to a theme. I'm interested in the dynamic between you, how often you've met, and what you have gained from that. Thank you. I think we don't know if any of us knew each other, but um, we were all kind of thrown together. And, well, I certainly found it really interesting talking to all the artists or the artists that I've met and just to hear their stories. That's... um, um, it's like you were saying. It's it's nice to know there are other people out there that are having. Well, it's not nice having similar experiences or have things that they can relate to you with. And yeah. there is a certain. Uh, um, I say, <laughs> uh, can't think of the word now. Yeah, 
yeah, I think it's I think it's encouraging when you you do work alone, and you do spend weeks where you drop off to your studio and you see no one and you come back, and you sometimes wonder whether what you're doing is <laughs> is a good approach, and to come across a group of people who not only understand your approach and appreciate it, but also work in a very similar way is a very rewarding thing to do. So. Yeah, it's been it's been great. We haven't. I met Adela and uh, Miriam on Saturday, so we haven't known each other. Well, there are exhibitions where we have opportunities to socialise more, and there are some cases where we don't. This is one of those that we don't have a lot of time together. But then, on the other hand, I'm really happy to be here today. This is very an honour. Like saying London School of Economics in my country means really something, <laughs> and. Um, I felt, you know, that this is this is going to be a great experience, but we also have like two or three more days together. So, I mean, it's always also good to see how other artists um, have this like similar uh, interests, but work work it differently and have different uh, products at the end. And it's always interesting the way how to see it and to meet other other people, of course. Hi. Uh, so this is, I guess, an observation. Um, I find it quite interesting. So the, the title of this, of the, this uh, exhibition is, is called "Conflicted Memory," um, but I, I'm, not, I'm not really feeling a lot of, of the conflict in the memories coming through. And I think there's quite an interesting contrast here that we're speaking about events that, in their own right, were incredibly uh, conflict-ridden. There, there were very tense situations where people felt very strongly about X or Y. Um, but these memories that are coming out are not judgmental in any way. They're not saying that anybody is at fault. They're not, they're not putting any emphasis on, or, or blame on, on any complex dynamics. It's really just about, here was a thing, I think this thing was bad. And it's, it's an interesting way that we've come out of the conflict into something which is, um, quite, I think, quite simple and quite, quite, quite a strong negative emotion to that. And I, I, I'd be interested to hear what the, what the panelists think, if that's, if that's a, the right interpretation that you're not really dwelling on, on the, the, the nature of the conflict itself, but really on uh, the, the, the sort of intellectual void that it was, a, a sort of nothingness. Okay, did you hear that, Crystal? You're not really yeah. dwelling on the nature of the conflict mm. itself? All right. Let's take, let's take the same question here. Okay. Thank you very much for your talk. My name's Ishbel. Um, I, I think I'm, I'm just going to end up building on some things that have already been said, uh, not so much a question, but also an observation. I was very interested in, in uh, a comment Jonathan made about uh, repetition and uh, the precision of, of all your, your, your work, and then the concept of catalogue as, as something in, uh, that, that a lot of societies that have experienced conflict have then had to use sometimes to, uh, at least in these sort of official narrative uh, discourses that have also been alluded to by the th three artists, uh, to, to uh, take account of and sometimes to hold people to account. And I was very interested in how catalogue, perhaps, in your, in your work opens another space because these are personal catalogues as opposed to necessarily totalizing or enumerating catalogues. That, that was all I, I thought perhaps you'd want to discuss it, but <laughs> feel free not to. 
Um, I suppose in terms of um, not making a judgment or, or just sort of putting something out there, I think there's, there's been <laughs> enough conflict and enough rhetoric thrown around and the issues that are thrown up are very complex. I am white, I am a South African, you know, my legacy is, is one that I, you know, I have inherited, you know, a good education as opposed to somebody who just had a different colour skin. And so when you are confronted with these awful things, um, people understand them as awful. And it doesn't do any good, I don't think, to stand up and, and basically say, well, you know point fingers and things, but rather say, well, I'm conflicted about this and, and let me just open up a new discussion. And in terms of catalogue um, <coughs> um, and there being official narrative or, or using work as catalogue, well, a lot of healing happens through talking and personal narrative. And um, particularly in South Africa, one of the major triumphs, I think, in the resolution was the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, where people were allowed to come and discuss their stories and face the aggressor, in a sense. And they were allowed to discuss their stories back. And, and through this kind of dialogue and, and talking and just opening things up, a lot of this conflicted memory can, can be resolved, or at least put on the table. The second question, just um, the last few years I've had some kind of you know, fairly unpleasant experiences and they've been related to the, the situation in the north and I've had to, well, I've felt the need to leave the north just in the last few months as a result and for some reason I have this urge or, you know, I feel like I really want to catalogue these stories, and they're all isolated stories, but very much connected to the, the climate and the situation up there. Um, See, so I already call it up there. You know, it's, I'm already down away from it. But it's, it's, I can't quite um, intellectualize it or explain it, but I do have this urge to catalogue it. I don't know why. And the next um, show that I'm, I'm working towards will have a series of drawings that are all going to tell parts of this story and I suppose in their totality they will um, they'll hopefully um, be accessible obviously to, to the audience because I don't like to be too personal you know inaccessible so, or so personal that it's inaccessible um, and I hope that it will just uh, give another portrait of a person's experience of that of being there and the things that can happen to you when you're there I can't explain why I want to do it, though. It's just... I can, I can just uh, sort of pick up on that, too. I, in the process of cataloguing, going back to the idea of, of repetition, um, you know, the emphasis on archive increasingly and very strong in this exhibition, which is related as well to the, to the um, academic impulse, which was, was also there from the beginning. And you see it as well in the... 
um, you see it in the, in the repetition of the format. The drawings are all the same size from the history books. The drawings are all the same size of the of the drawings of the plants, for example. You know, I think there is something uh, something strongly in that, and it reminds me. Um, two of, uh, be interesting to, for you to meet Cornelia Parker if you haven't already an artist who is very interested in trauma you know it could be the big bang it could be the exploded garden shed it could be the steamroller that runs over the, um, uh, the silverware I mean the, these things that uh, ex- experience uh, innocently uh, you know something awful and then the job of the artist is to is to look at uh, you know, the outcome of of that traumatic event, and then start to sort through things, to catalogue them, and to you know start um, you know sorting them out according to size or or type. And and when you look at her work, you know, I think the the uh, the um, the profound effect that it has is derived from the contrast between that traumatic event that is kind of clear from the way that she shows it, but then also this very, very careful uh, sorting out of things and the, for- and the formal nature of the, of the finished installation. It, um, but, it, you know, it, it uh, relates uh, clearly to a lot of what, what's been said, but a lot of what's in that show right now and, and what it is that you've observed, I think. I just wanted to react to the first um, comment, and if I understood you correctly, you said um, these words, works are not about conflict per se, um, and to me they're exactly about conflict and probably the essence of conflict, and I think um, if, if these works are not about conflict, I think it, it, it almost means that we have a, a preconceived idea of what a conflict looks like or what these conflicts look like, and um, whatever kind of sphere, sphere we are engaged in, we might have certain preconceptions about that. What was powerful about these works for me was that they exactly subvert that and, and show us that there's um, different, different fault lines and they might be among the causes of conflict, they might be shaping the aftermath of conflict. And it's an ongoing, long process um, uh, with, with no sort of no linearity to it, no... Um, sort of clear sort of questions, answers, or causes and, and consequences, and so I think that is exactly what conflict is about, um, but in a probably thought about in a, in a somewhat different way if we 're coming from maybe a more academic or journalistic perspective to this I'm just wondering whether we should conclude on that point and I mean last question yeah. gentlemen at the back. <laughs> Please speak up. Okay, I can speak up. Uh, uh, my name is Arslan. Uh, I would like to ask the participants a question. Uh, what do they feel that uh, in conflicted societies, how much are those experiences actually limiting to artists in terms of both their obligation to talk about it, the experiences from uh, conflicts, and both in terms of access to funds? for their art? Well, I would, um, like, when we speak about access to funds, we already said that, um, I said that in a country it is, hor- it is the situation is really bad. Um, I think that artists have the obligation to speak about um, what, what surrounds them and not to be isolated studio um, um, persons who just sit there and 
have dialogue with themselves and expect later that somebody should understand that. And he says, no, nothing, uh, no connection to any social relevance or whatever except for their own uh, inner world. Because I think today that that art is going that direction for a very long time and I feel that is the only way, especially in the societies like ours. Mm, But then on the other hand, what I would really like to mention that which your question kind of directed me to is there is a double trap there. Sometimes you are invited as an artist um, to many exhibitions only because you speak about conflict cause maybe, or because you speak about the war because that year the war in Bosnia is popular in these type of institutions or funds or whatever. And then next year it will be some other um, you know, conflict uh, or I don't know. And, but what I can say is that it is on an artist's duty to uh, try to see which of these uh, exhibitions or proposals to exhibitions are the ones that he or she wants to participate in and how much will you gain and how much will you lose um, if you're marked as a conflict artist or, or um, not. So, um, but then on the other hand, if you uh, continue to speak about certain things, then I think that uh, it must have an impact. So it is kind of a duty to also, uh, if you're an artist who deals with that, to um, continue and show that around and speak about it as, as louder as possible. So a friend of mine, it was a while back now, they saw one of my, just a drawing I had made and I had no intention of showing it to anybody. But he said to me, you owe it to society. You have to put that out there. And um, I kind of took it on board in a way because it's very easy to get uh, lost in your studio and to be um, never really fully expected to put it out there um, for periods of time anyway. And so in that sense, I do think if you are an artist and you, if you have that vehicle and that that way of working then, or that vocation, then you do have some obligation in a way. If you're living in a place that's conflicted, if you have any sensibility to it, I think it will come through in the work anyway. I believe that most art is, you know, to some degree autobiographical, and I think if you are being affected by the place that you're in, it will in some way filter into the work. I wouldn't set out to make work about it, and I haven't. It's just happened because, of, because I was affected by it. Um, I think there is a danger, like you were saying, of being labeled as a, a conflict artist or something. Um, and you do have to be careful about that, and, and also with the politics that goes on within funding. And um, so you have to kind of walk that that line a little bit and um, so I think you're always best to keep the, in, the integrity, your integrity as an artist first and foremost and then the, the work that, or what you talk about is, is the next thing and um, yeah Yeah, to build on that I, I have a little bit of a problem with the word obligation um, because I think if you make work just because you're there at that place, yes you're often presented with real strong contrasts and things that stare you blatantly in the face 
But if you are obliged to make work about that, sometimes you're beating a hollow drum, and the work that you make is kind of stillborn. It's it's not got any power to it because it's literally just um, another mouthpiece. Um, so I think, in a sense, you you or my my personal belief is that your work is very informed by your past and or my past and and um, my experiences and, and kind of the work is filtered through me and by that it has this link and this discussion but I don't particularly believe that I am obliged to make work about that. There are many issues in the world that are wrong and there are many things that are problematic um, but if I'm just obliged to make work about one particular thing it becomes a very narrow practice so I suppose for me it's a, it's, a difficult, it's a difficult question to answer yes I will make work about stuff which troubles me and that might be you know apartheid or, or something like that but in terms of being obliged to do it I think that's a very dangerous a very dangerous wording. I think we should, the artists have had their final say, and uh, we should thank them for a very interesting uh, presentation.